0: The Adult Ballet Studio is a podcast featuring conversations with the empowering voices of the adult ballet community, a world where passion has no limits and dreams can take flight. My name is Elizabeth Blossfield and I'm an adult ballet dancer and your host. Welcome to the studio. Happy Tuesday and welcome back to the adult ballet studio. It's officially October, so happy spooky season to all who celebrate. Our guest this month definitely celebrates. In fact, she wrote an entire full-length ballet with the zombies in it. This episode is going to be very festive. Joining the studio this month is someone who is so cool, and I'm very excited to introduce her to all of you because we've been dancing together for several years. Her name is Lee Pertle, and she's the artistic director for an adult ballet company based in the Los Angeles area called Lee Pertle Ballet Company. I discovered the company several years ago and loved its mission of ballet for everyone. On its website, leepurtleballetcompany.org, it says the company's mission is to foster a community of ballet dancers that's reflective of anyone and everyone who wants to participate. Lee says this means putting dancers on stage who don't fit the outdated mold of the perfect ballerina, who don't all look alike, sound alike, or move alike. I joined the company as a dancer in 2020 and have been so inspired by the community Lee has built which was a feat that was easier said than done because maybe you don't know this, but I don't live in LA. I live all the way on the opposite side of the United States in the New York, New Jersey area. But Lee did a pretty inspiring thing a few years ago during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. She realized how quickly the world was changing and knew that in order to thrive as an inclusive ballet company, they would need to change with it. So she opened up her company to remote dancers all over the world. Now that pandemic restrictions have eased, in-studio classes and live performances are back, and we're so grateful. But at LPBC, Lee recognized that for various reasons, COVID or otherwise, dancers and audiences might not be able to access in-person shows and classes. So she offers hybrid classes in the LA studio open to company members and the general public— and she broadcasts them in real time over Zoom. She also works with remote dancers to create short films that are showcased at each live performance in California and later live-streamed in a special streaming event for any audience members who couldn't make it in person to the show. The company hosts a couple events per year. This year, they hosted a spring gala called Ballet in Bloom that featured a live performance and a short film, as well as a fireside chat with Katherine Morgan of Katherine Morgan & Friends as the guest of honor. Later this year, they'll debut an original spin on the classic Nutcracker story. The company also participates in a lot of community outreach and initiatives to bring ballet to everyone. So what do zombies have to do with all of this? (laughs) Sweet Sorrow, a zombie ballet, is an LPBC original ballet that Lee says aims to do for Halloween what Nutcracker has done for Christmas. This spooky ballet returns audiences to a forest in Verona, where the story of Romeo and Juliet continues in the underworld after they're dead. It's been performed by the company annually since 2017, and last year it was presented for the final time on the company's fifth anniversary. The ballet is resting now in the crypt (laughs) to give the company a chance to perform newer original work, but at least as it will return one day, so horror fans don't worry. And as it turns out, LPBC has a lot of horror ballet fans. Did you even know that was a thing? The company has been profiled in The Advocate and featured on KTLA. Company dancers also won ABC's The Gong Show in 2017, where they performed a segment from Sweet Sorrow. The company has seen growing success in the past five years since its launch, and I was so happy to talk to Lee about why she's passionate about teaching adults, the way she uses storytelling in her choreography, drawing from her experience as a filmmaker and novelist, and the newest ballet in the company's pipeline, an original twist on the Nutcracker called Cracked Nutcracker with a Twist, making its world premiere at the Lanternman Auditorium in La Cañada, California, later this year on November 11th and 12th. I could talk forever and ever about all of the good Lee is doing through the company, for the ballet community, but I've talked too long already, and I think you should probably just hear it from her. Check out her interview. Hi, Lee, How are you?
1: Good. How are you?
0: I'm good so much for taking the time to do this i really appreciate it i know you're so busy in the middle of in-studio rehearsals and with you know remote rehearsals starting soon too so
1: oh no this is really exciting i love that you're doing a podcast and especially aiming it at the adult ballet community um you know i've seen a lot of instagram accounts and and that's great but i think it's also nice to hear what people have to say so
0: yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you actually, because I feel like this whole idea kind of formulated from dancing with Lee Pearl Ballet Company because I was looking for adult ballet podcasts. I just love listening to podcasts. And so I was looking for ones about the adult ballet community specifically, and I couldn't really find anything. There are like a couple out there that are good resources, but there was nothing that was, you know, just interviews with people who are doing cool stuff um, with adult ballet. So um, it kind of all started formulating once I joined LPBC and saw what a great community there is. So I'm really excited to ask you a bunch of questions. I have like a million questions for you.
1: Oh, good. (laughs) I feel sometimes like all I do is answer the same questions or like, oh, do people really want to hear this? So I'm happy to answer anything. So
0: Oh, I'm so excited. Well, I'm excited to hear whatever you have to say. And I'm sure our listeners are too. But I mean, obviously I know who you are. But for anybody who's listening who isn't familiar with you and the work that you do, I was wondering if you could just give some background about who you are and some of the work you do at LPVC.
1: Oh, sure. Um, so my name's Lee Pertle, and I always have to pronounce that for people because it looks like it says L-E-I-G-H. It's like I hear people say, is that Leia? Is it Leah? <laughs> Um, so I always, you know, I feel like I correct my correct people a lot, but, um, yeah, it's Lee and, um, I am the artistic director of the Lee Proto Ballet Company. Um, and we have been a nonprofit since 2017, but long before that, I, I've been working with adult ballet dancers, um, in Los Angeles since 2008, I think um, I used to work for a studio in Pasadena, um, long before I, I went out on my own. Um, I just started as a sub. I used to, I mean, I used to teach years ago. Um, I mean, I've taught off and on on for many, many years before I sort of committed to it. Um, but when I was working for the studio, um, all my, you know, I, I had these wonderful dancers and it felt like, they were missing opportunities to perform because whenever it came time for Nutcracker or the Spring Show, they were sort of forgotten and I thought that they should have uh, they, I thought that they should have performance opportunities. So through that studio, I started choreographing dances for them and, and soon people realized, oh hey, you know the the dancers that, you know Lee, you know, the take class with Lee aren't just going to be standing on stage, you know, sort of, you know, like in Nutcracker, just like holding up a, a, a fake drink or something like that. <laughs> you know, they're actually dancing. They're doing, you know, they're doing point work. They're doing, you know, actual choreography and they're taking, and a lot of, you know, they're doing a lot of character work too, which is a lot of fun. Um, and I think something that's especially well suited for adult dancers. So it sort of started like that. So a lot of the dancers that, it, you know, that, the, I mean, the, well, the entire group that started with the company in 2017 had been performing with me for years, you know, um, before we actually form, you know, formally had a company. So I feel like I've been doing this for a really long time. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, I mean, I'm so glad that you had the idea to start something like this, because I think you're right. I mean, there are classes like technique classes out there for adults, but it's so hard to find performance opportunities. And it's a bummer that people just assume, you know, once you reach a certain age, you want to stop performing. And that's not always true. And I know we got connected a couple of years ago, because I think it was during the pandemic, I was taking a virtual class on Instagram Live. And in the comments, someone mentioned that they danced with this company, Lee Pearl Valley Company, that was looking to audition for new dancers and I was so nervous during my audition I was like what if they don't accept me (laughs) but um it turned out to be just a wonderful process and I discovered this incredibly supportive community and um and I know that you just celebrated your five-year anniversary last year and you during the pandemic decided to open up the company to remote dancers all over the world as well which is such a cool thing because you have you know the physical studio location in the LA area and then you also have Um, these hybrid classes and rehearsals and performance opportunities with dancers all over the world, really. So I was curious how you got that idea. And, you know, it doesn't seem to be something that a lot of ballet companies are doing. So how did you go about it? And, you know, it seems like such a big undertaking.
1: It is. It is a big undertaking. And it doesn't seem like that when you step back and look at it, you go, oh, my gosh, this is what we're doing, which is, you know, really cool and has some big implications. I have always had this weird dream of having a company that was like all around the world, around the country. I didn't think global, but, um, you know, now I do. Uh, Now I'm thinking internationally. But originally I had been thinking, I still kind of think this way too, as we progress. Um, You know, we have, when you think about the company, we have company members, everybody, you know, whether they're performing or not, they are a company member. And then I thought it would be interesting or fun or certainly, you know, exciting to have um, member companies. And I was envisioning many years ago that we would do something similar with other groups like mine um, across the country and that we would all be connected through like choreography and shows like that. And that was sort of a, a a pipe dream sort of thing, like, well, maybe in the future when we have more capital and we have the ability to, you know, go out of our, you know, leave, leave L.A. and actually go out and meet people, um, we could start fostering those relationships. But then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden everything was online and I had been doing you know i had been doing some things online um just you know i had my own youtube channel that i would put up videos and then when we had no you know when we had to stay home it was i i like i i was online on youtube the next day i was on youtube doing youtube live you know classes teaching every single day and i saw, taught every single day and it was something that i enjoyed and i found that there were so many people out there that, you know, I knew that they'd be missing ballet because I did. I missed the the connection to the people and we were able to sort of have a facsimile of that online and it sort of pushed me and pushed the company into uh, the idea of having remote dancers. And it started because I already had some dancers who, you know, because I, you know, live in Los Angeles, a lot of people, Come to LA, they take classes or whatever. I meet them that way, but then they move, they go back home to where they maybe they came from, or they just move on in their lives. And but they were, you know, I, I'm I was still in touch with them, and um, they were some of the first people that we had in the company, um, who are remote dancers, and um, and that's that's basically how it began. And the year I remember the, that when you joined everything obviously was remote and that included even local dancers had it had to be online and it's sort of even the playing field, you know, it wasn't like anybody had anything. I don't want to say better than anybody else, but everybody, everybody truly was equal because they were in their home studios and, you know, they didn't have access to, you know, a lot of, you know, technique class or this or that. So it was really a great opportunity to sort of just you know take into account everybody wherever they were, and I remember your video. Oh God! <laughs> no, no, no! It's not a bad thing at all. I mean, it's it's funny that you say you were so nervous because I recall um my in my brain I'm thinking of you as a very, that you were very serious. I remember that very serious, that you were like, oh my gosh, she's very serious, which was great. You know, I, you know, that's fine. But then come to meet you and you, you smile and laugh a lot and everything. And it's, you know um, but now that I understand you were just, you were just nervous. So, but you came across as very serious.
0: I was so nervous. Yeah, I hadn't auditioned for anything since probably college in my college dance program. And I remember my husband being like, you know, just relax. This is a supportive adult ballet company. And um, and it was, there was nothing to be afraid of, but <laughs> it was a great experience and and still continues to be. And, you know, what I think is so cool is you mentioned that, The dance community sort of came together during the pandemic because everybody was dealing with the same things. Everybody's trying to maneuver around, you know, kitchen tables and, you know, holding on to whatever they have for a bar. And it kind of put us all in the same boat. But then even beyond, you know, the pandemic, when things started opening back up, I feel like you've been able to retain such an incredibly supportive community of dancers, even with, you know, people spread out all over and still continuing to do classes and rehearsals on Zoom. And um, and you also do these really cool short films with all the remote dancers so that they can be played um, at the beginning of the live performances um, for the different opportunity performance opportunities we do throughout the year. And I think that's really cool, too, because it brings the remote aspect not only to you know dancers, but audiences as well who maybe can't attend an in-person performance but can watch the live stream of the short film that we put together. So I was curious um, for other arts organizations, because I haven't seen a lot of arts organizations doing something like this. You know, if they're looking to attract new audiences or maybe transition to a new way of capturing their audience, what advice would you give them or what have you learned along the way?
1: Well, what I've definitely found is that you, I mean so much has obviously so much has transpired and we, we understand audiences have very different needs now and dancers have very different needs. There are a lot of people who, you know, are either because of where they live, they don't have access to, you know, live performances or um, only, you know, limited performances um, or or for whatever reason they, you know, are not able to get to a performance. And um, I think it's important to bring, bring the arts to them in the way that they need to access it. And, um, it's, you know, it's not easy and, but I think that it is worth it because that's part of making the arts inclusive of, of everybody. Um, and I think that the, I think that the dancers too are, are looking for that opportunity they want something that you know that that also that will fit in with their schedule that will fit in with what they have the you know bandwidth as you say to do you know um you all have busy lives but this is something that you still love and you want to make time for it in the way that you can make time for it i don't think that people should be punished before because, oh, well, the only way to do this is if you spend X number of hours in the studio with every, you know, it's like, no, there has to be another way to, um, to get, get you in. And I don't want to exclude anybody. So that, I mean, that, I don't know if that answers your question, but I do feel like some arts organizations, um, now that they, pandem- pandemic, is quote over, which you know, obviously we still have this, um, we still have COVID and we still have a lot of people who are vulnerable. Um, and I think that many of them just said, okay, we're done with that. Let's go back to the theater. And, you know, they expected that everybody would just go back to the way it was. And that's just not the way it's going to be. And if you are not flexible and are not willing to try new things, um, and to pivot in new directions, I think that you, will not be as successful as you could be.
0: Yeah, I think that's so true. And if there's anything we learned from the pandemic, it's that, you know, the importance of it adapting, you know, just as you mentioned. And I think it's so great what you're doing because sometimes the world of ballet and dance in general can just feel so exclusive. And it's so important, as you said, to find all the different paths to bringing dancers and audiences into ballet who, um, you know, might not have a certain amount of time to dedicate to it each week or might not be able to get to the studio. Um, And that kind of leads into my next question too, because I was curious also for other dance companies or even just individual dancers who are looking to find that community, that supportive community, what advice would you give them? Or, you know, what are the best steps to sort of get started?
1: Well, if they don't have it, they should start it.
0: <laughs> it's Such like, important I mean, advice.
1: Yeah. But I mean, I think that that's, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh gosh, I'd really like this. And I, you know, I, I I would love to do this where I am. And it's like, okay, start it. It doesn't take a lot of capital investment to do something online. Most everybody has Zoom. Um and um, you know, you can connect that way. And of course you can always connect with us, that's for sure. Um, but um, you know, I think that the, I think that the community is a lot bigger than, than we realize, and that's something that came out of the pandemic too. Is that you know we only have access to like I only have access to the dancers that I see, you know, and the, who come into the studio or who contact me, and then you sort of find out oh gosh there's this there's this a huge huge group of people, and they just need to be connected. They just need you know. Um, whether they do it through Instagram or Facebook or, you know, what have you, and then building it from there, I think that it, it is definitely a grassroots, um, effort. It takes, it takes actually, I think that the passion is, is really, it takes, because it is time consuming, um, and it's trial and error and finding what works and what, what, you know, finding the people that will will have the same, you know, have similar interests and, and plans as you do. I mean, there are a lot of organizations, there are a lot of, um, ballet companies and not ballet companies, but ballet groups. I don't know how you would term them, but they definitely have provided opportunities for adult dancers to perform, but they are not necessarily a company. Um, so that may be, you know, so I think that there are a lot of different types of opportunities, depending on what it is that you want. And yeah, and if you don't see it, you should, you should start it or get enough people together to say, Hey, let's do this.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I think that's such underrated advice. If you don't see it, start it because I think it can feel overwhelming, like easier said than done to so many people, but you can start small and just take baby steps and build toward, you know, where you want to go. Like you started with, YouTube live classes and it's sort of built into an entire company from there. So I think that's such important advice for dancers. Um, and I know you mentioned at the beginning how you sort of got um, started with the company, but I was curious about your own background. Also, how did you first get introduced to ballet? And can you talk about some of your background as a dancer?
1: Sure. Um, I'm, in typical fashion, my mother enrolled me in ballet classes and dance classes. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I was like maybe three or four. And it was, it was one of those, um, you know, tap and tap and, and ballet type classes with the combo classes. I think they call them combo classes. Mm-hmm. And it was at the local studio, local school. And um, it was... It was something that she had always wanted to do, and my brother, who played baseball, the baseball was something that my mother also really liked. So she put my brother in baseball, um, uh, like little league, and put me in um, in dance. And of course, my you know my brother continued to play baseball through college. Um, but we did move a lot when I was a kid. So in every town we moved. The dance studio was one of the first things that we located and enrolled me in. And so I did a lot of recitals. I was in recital schools um, as opposed to pre-professional schools. I think nowadays, and of course, I'm going to show my age here, but um, I've been dancing for 55 years. Oh, my god, that's incredible. <laughs> so I say that only because I think people think that's you know, you know, it's, it's only something for young people, but, um, yeah, I've been dancing for a really long time. Um, but back then pre-professional ballet schools and homeschooling so that dancers could, um, also train, that was not a thing that's, you know, I, I, you see that all over Instagram and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people who have done that or who have children who are doing that now. And that's great. But that's not what the norm was back when I was a kid. It was really, you know, you you, you took your weekly classes. And if you were serious, you know, you would continue on. You take more classes and, you know, private lessons and maybe pursue it through college or something. But, you know, it's such a small, like a very, very tiny percentage of dancers go on to become professionals that that really was never in my sights. And I was encouraged to do a lot of other activities in high school. So dance was just one of them. And then when I went to college, I sort of rediscovered it. Um, And that was sort of a, I was lucky. I went to, um, my undergraduate was at Mount Holyoke College in Western Massachusetts. Mount Holyoke had a a wonderful, and still does have a great um, dance program. And I just, fell in love with dance again. Um, <laughs> but as I've told many people this, I don't know if I've told you this, but I hated ballet. Um, I hated it. I would run out of ballet classes in college with tears in my eyes because I it, it wasn't something that came naturally to me. And even though I loved it when I was a kid, I think one of the things that happens is as your body changes, um, you start to drift away from a, an art form that is is include is very exclusive or can be considered that so it wasn't something that i i really you know i didn't fall back in love with ballet i just fell back in love with dance and after college i was i wanted to do some teaching i also did a little bit of performing but i enjoyed teaching and i studied pedagogy in college and when i went to the studio to interview for a job as a jazz teacher, which is what I loved and what I thought was pretty good at, the studio owner said, oh, no, you're going to be my ballet instructor. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? No, no, no. And so I had to re-educate myself in ballet.
0: Oh, wow. That's crazy. So you you rediscovered your love for ballet through getting back into teaching, really?
1: Mm-hmm. I know. And I was not a great teacher um, because, I mean, I wasn't a great teacher to to begin with. It took a it took a long time. I didn't really know how to teach children. Um, That was hard. That was hard teaching kids. I have the utmost respect for teachers who, um, especially movement teachers, because it's really hard. And um, I've done it. I've taught all levels and all ages from like three. Up to teens, you know, of course, adults as well. But it it's really hard to do, and I I think that you really have to have a lot of patience. And it's a true gift to teach to teach kids. Um, I don't know how I don't know how I learned anything because I mean it's a hard. It's hard to do. Um, it's so hard, yeah. But it's, it's really hard. But then you know, once I become once once I sort of found adult the adult community and um as i mentioned earlier i i got into that through subbing um because i'm also a writer and so i was writing books i i've had multiple careers but um at the time that i was writing novels and publishing novels i also was looking for additional work and i found my way back into ballet and back into teaching and um i never really left it but um I realized that I was a pretty good adult ballet teacher. Um, And it was, I think, primarily because I was one of them. I was an adult ballet dancer, even though I'd I'd studied since I was a kid. I understood them. Um, I understood that there was a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that adult dancers take with them into the studio. And that, you have to, you know, you can't just, you can't just treat them like children. It's not the same at all.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And you continue to be an incredible adult ballet teacher. I've learned so much studying with you. I never imagined that I would be able to get my pirouettes back on point after being off of it for so long. And they're not perfect, but I'm getting there. And I feel like,
1: oh, a lot of that
0: to you when dancing with the company. So Um, but you, I mean, you, so you also mentioned that you're a writer and I definitely want to get back to that because I feel like you've mentioned it a couple of times in passing and it's always been like, oh yeah, I wrote a couple of novels and like, that's a huge deal. So we need to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Just real quick, um, before that you mentioned, you know, some of the challenges you encountered in college with ballet. And I think that's a common sentiment, you know, some of the just, it's so rigorous and it can be, you know, it can require so much perfectionism that I think a lot of people feel driven away from the passion of it. And I was curious if some of those challenges that you encountered um, play a part in why you want to make ballet more accessible.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, that is something like I, I mean, I knew ballet dancers at, in college that were, it, they were, you know, they were beautiful. They were, you know, their technique was stunning and, you know, they, um, you know, they would go on to do other, other things, whether they went on to perform professionally I don't know, but, um, it definitely felt like they were a different breed of people, you know, and it wasn't something that I felt I was like, um, I also, there's one teacher I had, one um, ballet instructor I had that I always remember um, at at Mount Holyoke who would sort of gave me a, like, I kept this with me forever and ever and I still think of it now, is she would say something like, well, what's the little story that you're telling in your head when you do adagio? And she said it. She was like, and I just remember this, she would say, you know, she would tell, like, she would demonstrate the adagio and she would say what was in her mind, like the little story that she was telling. And I thought, that's great. That's a really tremendous way to it, um, to make ballet accessible to people because it's not just, um, that's a storytelling. It's using movement to tell a story, to tell your story. And I love that because I never thought of it that way. I, I always thought of modern and like modern dance sort of like, you know, your own personal expression, jazz dance, but ballet felt to me like, as you said, as rigorous and disciplined and it didn't seem to have a lot of room for, um, creative expression. It felt like, well, here's Swan Lake and here is the role that you're going to be playing. And you don't really have a lot to, you know, a lot of input on that. Um, and like what the, what we do is is very character based. So like all the movement begins with the story. All the movement begins with what the character is. And that is not something that I found when I was studying Ballet until I found that one teacher, Hannah Wiley. Um but um but yeah, that's I mean, there's the actual creative expression that I think is not necessarily encouraged. Um, in, in the ballet world, especially when you're young. Um, but then of course there is the, you know, the physical requirements and, and, you know, um, that like rigidity of, of, uh, of, an, of appearance or, um, technical, you know, technical skill, um. Yeah, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it
0: makes a lot of sense, and I think a lot of people feel that, and I, that's part of the reason why you know they quit ballet when they're young, or maybe don't come back to it as adults. So I think that's such an important message: is that ballet can be accessible for everyone. And I love that adagio exercise. I've never thought about it as actually telling a story, but I'm gonna have to try that in my head in my next
1: class. Um, that's yeah, pretty- I I do that because I do that a lot when I'm when I'm teaching. When I teach class in person, like I I know you take class, you take my point class, but with my um, technique class, that is something I will, you know, especially I'll encourage my, you know, well, like my, well, all classes really, because all levels of dancer can tell a story, whether they're brand new or whether they're, you know, advanced dancers, they can, they can tell the story that's in their head. It's, It's a different story for you and for me than it is for me. So
0: yeah, that's so cool. I love that. And that's a great transition into my next question too, because, you know, you mentioned you're a novelist, you've written two young adult novels, if I'm correct. And I was curious if you could, well, first of all, just talk about that because it's so cool and such a big accomplishment, but, you know, also how is your writing experience sort of translated to your storytelling as a dancer yourself, but also as a teacher and a choreographer and how did those two skills sort of feed into each other?
1: Oh, there you go. That's a good question. Um, nobody's asked to see this because I'm saying nobody's asked that question. That's wonderful. Okay. (laughs) So I know, (laughs) but I've talked to a lot of people and, but they all tend to ask the same questions. Um, but nobody's asked that before. So when I, when I went, I went to uh, graduate school, um, and I, but I studied film production. I have a master's in film and, uh, particularly screenwriting. So, Um, I really loved, I loved adapting novels for, you know, writing, like screenwriting for screenplays, and then also, you know, writing original stories. And I moved to New York and obviously continued to dance and everything, but, um, I pursued, um, I was working in production as a script supervisor, um, on movie sets and TV and, you know, commercials and all that sort of thing. And also writing and hoping that, you know, somebody sometime would want to, you know, produce one of my screenplays or I would, you know, direct it. Ha ha ha. Because um, I fancied I wanted to be a director. And it's funny how things sort of turned around. Yeah. Um, I moved. Out. I, it, yeah, it's all kind of comes together with the company. So when I moved out to L.A. Um, with my husband, I... I got out of production and I started working in television. I worked as a broadcast standards editor for the WB and I started writing something that was not, I had been writing novel. I mean, I had been writing screen, but I'd never written a novel before. I think I might've started one and I got maybe three chapters in and it was terrible. Um, And then I started, I had this idea and um, it became, I started writing it and it became this huge thing. And I remember giving it to a friend and I said, is this a novel? I think I wrote a novel. And he, re- he read it and he said, yeah, you 100% did write a novel and it's good. And I thought, wow, that's really crazy. I didn't think I had never, I didn't think I was going to write an, no- I mean, I love reading, I love writing and I can't imagine that I wrote a novel. And sure enough, I ended up, that wasn't the first novel that I sold. Uh, the second novel I wrote sold first and then the and that was called um the first novel i wrote ended up it was called the the working title was called fat girls in la and it was basically like i had moved out here and it felt like every person i saw was like skinny and there were there were no you know like even if you were a a size two you were you felt like you were a fat girl in la you know um and so It was, it ultimately was, was, uh, published, uh, with, um, Penguin as an, it was called, um, all about V and that was not the first, that was the first novel I wrote, but it was the second one that was published. The first one that was published was called love Meg. And the original title of that was Jennifer Aniston is my best friend. And that was about, um, you know, these are both young adult novels and that was also published with Penguin. Um, And so I left my dot, my job at the WB because I had an agent and I was publishing two novels and I thought, okay, I'm going to be a writer now. This is great. And they're going to put my, my novels in the movies and TV. And isn't this going to be wonderful? I'm going to be a professional writer. And I, I like, Hmm, this isn't happening very fast. So I started teaching again and I still writing, still teaching. And then. You know, I started doing more teaching and less writing. I mean, less publishing. I did have two more novels published with a pen named Cat Jordan, and that was with Harper Collins. Um, so those two novels were published um, in 2016 and 2017. So there was a big gap of time when all I was doing was, um, was I was writing, but I'm not publishing. And then I was teaching and choreographing. And so a lot of, so Sweet Sorrow, uh, this is a long story. So Sweet Sorrow uh, was based on, so basically there was a tiny little piece of music called Dance of the Nights by Prokofiev that comes from Sweet, from Romeo and Juliet. And that's the, you know, the iconic zombie ballet, da, 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 that one. And I, sort of created this little story and it became a bigger story. And then I decided to write it as a novel. So I wrote it as a novel. It hasn't been published, but I hope at some point it will be. Um, And then, so then there was a stage version and what I was finding was that, and I, I am finding this now is like, I love to write and, but I also get a lot of my creative and storytelling expression through the stage, through, uh, you know, through the storytelling on stage and through, through movement. So that's one of the reasons why all of my shows, all of the character, like everything comes from character. Everything comes from the story that is being told. And I work with the dancers to create that so that they are, they are in, in impacting the way the story is developed. So that has been really exciting for me. And, um, it's not that I don't want to continue to write because I am, I do continue to write. I've written a lot of other novels. Um, but I feel like I do have the opportunity to be, to be the, you know, um, the writer of the story of the ballets, you know? So, um, so, coming full circle I have my master's in film and so we do our short films which I love um you know my remote dancers which is one of the reasons why I'm never going to give that up because I love it so much it's that's like I mean I loved going to film school I love storytelling through film so there's that and then there's I get to be a director because I'm directing the dancers on the stage and I'm choreographing their movement and and so to all kind of culminates in these these productions that we're doing. And it's like very, very creatively fulfilling.
0: That is so cool and so inspiring to me how you took literally every single thing that you love, film, writing, ballet, and just combined it all so that you get to do these things that you love every single day. I think, um, you know, that's such a gift to be able to do that. And that whole story is so Crazy to me <laughs> the fact that you know you were just like, oh, I think I accidentally wrote a novel and it's really good. And <laughs> penguin's gonna publish it. That's crazy, but also, you know, completely unsurprising to me because you have this knack for really creative, incredible storytelling. Um, and so yeah, thank you for sharing that story. It's so inspiring. And you know, I also you mentioned Sweet Sorrow, a zombie ballet, oh, which um we're recording this a little early, so it's still sort of the tail end of summer, but this episode will publish in October, so it'll be perfect. Um, but This is probably the most famous ballet with Lee Proto Ballet Company. It's um, kind of marketed as, you know, for Halloween, what Nutcracker is for Christmas. And it's a sequel to Romeo and Juliet, but it takes place after they're dead and <laughs> there are zombies in it. And I just think this is so cool. And I read in another interview that you said, you know, initially some people told you you were crazy for this idea of sweet sorrow. And I'm curious if you could just, one, talk about the show and, um, you know, how the idea sort of, you, you kind of talked a little bit about how it formulated but how you made it a reality and also how did you ignore some of those critical voices and follow your dream
1: instead that yeah it's it it yeah they yeah there are a lot of people who didn't think it was going to be anything they sort of turned their nose up at it like oh that's not real ballet um but the initial idea came from um i i was teaching and I had an accompanist who was an amazing accompanist, and he, um, and he played, um, he played that Prokofiev piece, and I think I did Grumbachma to it or something like that. I'm like, wow, that's great, but it stuck in my head, and I thought, and it was right around Halloween time, and I thought we were doing an adagio. This is my intermediate level group or my advanced group. And I said, why don't we take this adagio and we use this very dramatic piece of music from Romeo and Juliet and do it like <laughs> your zombies. And I think it was right around the time, it might have been before Shaun of the Dead or what, right, so it was kind of like zombies were on my mind. I love horror movies and I love zombies. I think they're like, I love George Romero's movies. And... um And so it's sort of like this confluence of things at the same time. And then I used it a few more times. I said, well, why don't we do this again? Let's, you know, it was, everybody loved it. It was because dancers love to be in character. You know, it's like, that's part of dancing is you become another person. You become another thing. And so I think a lot of people just really enjoyed that idea of being a zombie. And Then the following summer, I think I used it with, I was teaching a teen intensive with a friend of mine, Valley intensive, and I gave it to them and they loved it too. And it was just like one of those things where it's like, wow, everybody seems to really like doing this. So it wasn't necessarily a matter of people watching it and thinking it was cool. It was the people doing it that felt that it was like cool, you know, and that was what, I really liked about it that it was sort of dancer proof because anybody could do it no matter what level they were at in terms of their technique and how much experience they had, because it was character-based. And so not long after that, I, um, I showcased it at, uh, an event called art night Pasadena. And it just happened to be like around Halloween time and the audience loved it. And it was Not anything. I mean, some of the movement is that iconic movement is still in it, but the audience freaked out and it was like, wow, okay, this is really, I think we got something here. I got, I got something. And everybody, every time you mentioned it, it was this, what's that zombie belly? What, what is that? I I would like to see that. And at the time it was just called zombie belly. And then it sort of built from there. And, um, I, we put it at a horror convention in 2016 and it was, you know, I brought my dancers to Scare LA in Pasadena and we, I, I, the way I looked at that was, well, whatever, if people like it, they like it. I really don't care because it's the horror community and we're ballet dancers. They loved it. And it was like, wow. Okay. These people like this too. So it's not just ballet dancers or arts audiences, it's also the horror community. And so when you sort of look at something that has that broad appeal, that's really when you know that you have something that is, that could be popular or that you're kind of on the right track. So, you know, it wasn't, it, it sort of, it, it sounds like it would be, neat. it's a zombie ballet, it sounds like it would be very niche, but it actually is not. So it kind of grew from there. And knowing those initial, Um, like those initial comments from people, seeing people just follow my dancers around at the horror convention and just like, can we take a picture? Can we take a picture? Um, and like you starting to play the music and people running across the convention floor to see it. It was like, like, and that's exactly what happened. Like by the, by the last, one of the last events that we went to before the pandemic, that's exactly what happened we would, they would play the music and you just see people running to wherever they were to perform it. It was just like, you know, it was like, Whoa, okay, (laughs) this is cool. Um, and so that, that, that is the way that I sort of, you know, prevent myself from letting the the voices of people saying, well, this, nobody's going to take you seriously. You're going to, you know, um, you're going to you know, give ballet a bad name or, you know, you can't just let, that's another thing. You can't just let anybody do ballet. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Anybody can do ballet. Um, And it was, you know, people just, you know, not only turning your nose up at the zombie ballet connection, but just sort of like, well, if you're going to do that, then you're not doing real ballet and you're not letting real ballet, you know, real ballet dancers are doing it. So I think the initial response that I got from people at art night Pasadena at the horror conventions. And then of course, when we went on the gong show in 2017 and we won, um, and the reactions that we had there from people that I respected, um, I think that was, um, that is sort of like, I hung my hat on that and said, okay, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to keep going with
0: this. That's great. And I'm so glad you kept going with it. You know, it's obviously been a huge success. And just some of that criticism, you know, obviously, yeah, anybody can do ballet. How sad would it be if we didn't include anybody who wants to dance? That would completely defeat the purpose of self-expression in dance. So I'm glad that you didn't listen to the criticism. And... I just think it's creative and it's different, but you're right. It's also so fun to do. Like there's video of, you know, Catherine Morgan doing it, who was the guest of honor at our first gala this year. And I just think it's fun because there's so much to love about the classic story ballets, but there's also so much to love about getting to be in these interesting characters and doing movements that are different that you don't see in some of the classic ballets. So I think that's awesome. And um, and you also you've created a lot of other original ballets for the company as well. You have, you know, Circus of Worldly Wonders that previewed last year and is being developed into a full-length ballet. And then you have Hotel at the end of the universe. Um, and you have a new take on the Nutcracker coming this November called Cracked Nutcracker with a twist. And it's sort of a reinvention of the classic Nutcracker that follows the story of the maid inside the castle. Um, and she goes on this big adventure through the land of the Fae. So I was curious if you could talk about that and you know what's different about that story and some of the changes you made to the original nutcracker
1: absolutely well the number one change is that the original ballet as it's told on multiple stages across the continents all around the world is it is very child heavy right i don't mean child heavy. that sounds weird um it's it's uh it's all about the kids it's about clara And, um, and it's a love story, you know, it's, it's always, it's, it's framed as, um, depending on how, well, depending on how the story is told by the different schools, um, it is geared towards kids about Christmas and presents and, you know, the, the Nutcracker doll given as a gift and, and then, um, and then, you know, the, the, the Nutcracker doll coming to life and becoming, you know, depending on what, again, who's telling the story, they usually you know become sort of a, a love love story or a, a romance of some kind. Um, it's kind of a, I mean, it, there's nothing wrong with it. I love it, and I will watch any iteration of any <laughs> Nutcracker. I love them, um, and I love the class. I love it completely classic. You know, I love it, um, but I also feel like there are a lot of great companies doing that. And that's great, but if we're going to do something like that, I think I wanted to do something that was original to us. And the Lee Prindle Ballet Company is an adult ballet company. I'm sorry, but that's what it is. <laughs> you know, we don't we we have a couple of kids in our show this year, um, and they're wonderful, and I'm, I'm excited to work with them. But it's not it's not about you know, it's not a, a there aren't a lot of kids. It's not kid centered. It's child, it's family friendly for sure, but you know, it's it's available, it's a, enjoyable by anybody, kind of like Sweet Sorrow, um, but without anything scary. There's nothing scary in ours. But um but it is focused on an adult character. And in this case it's somebody that is not, you know, it's not she's not a princess. She's not a wannabe princess. She's a hardworking maid. And she's somebody who you know Does a lot of a lot of uh, work and doesn't necessarily get appreciated. And I think a lot of people can identify with that character as opposed to, you know, the rich little girl who has, you know, a huge party with life size dolls and then, you know, goes on an adventure in Candyland. So that's that's kind of the primary difference in just in terms of storytelling. And then of course, because I didn't want to like Nora, our main character, isn't gonna to go to the land of the sweets, right? That's not what she's interested in. So she goes to the land of the Fae, which is you know, has a lot of characters uh from Celtic mythology. Um so just something different, but we are still using all the classical music from the original Tchaikovsky a score. So um that's great too it's a challenge because now we're using the same music that is going to for a lot of people you're going to hear a piece of music and think oh that's you know spanish chocolate um or that's you know arabian coffee and it's like nope not in our show um we're not you know we're not doing that but we're still going to use the music so it is it's it's a challenge to make the music Um, you know, reflect different characters and a different story.
0: And what I love about this ballet and really your storytelling in all of your ballets is that you get so many different perspectives that it really does just go back to your mission of bringing ballet to everyone because anyone who comes to see the show or who performs in the show has a character they can relate to or something that they love. And it's cool to get the perspective, as you said, of the maid, you know, instead of, you know, following Clara through the story. I think it's just going to be such a cool show. And I literally can't wait till November (laughs) um, and to start working on because this week we're starting Starting to work on the short film for the remote dancers so that's gonna be fun too um and i know we only have a few minutes left because i know you're busy doing a million things right now so i don't want to take up too much of your time but we do have a petite allegro section on the podcast where i just ask you a bunch of quick fun questions about ballet
1: oh sure of course
0: in the last episode, I spoke with the guests about having a ballet buddy or a friend that you can do ballet class with. And we talked about how sometimes, especially, you know, when you're dancing at home, like we all did during the pandemic, you know, friends can be pets too. And you have a dog named Blossom. You just posted about her on your Instagram and she shows up a lot at rehearsals or classes. So I was curious where the name Blossom came from and how she became your ballet buddy.
1: Oh, okay. So my first dog um, was a mixed uh, Chihuahua breed, and her name we we rescued her, and the uh, the shelters gave her the name of Peaches, and we just kept it. And somehow, when I I saw a picture of Blossom, well, this little dog, and we, again, we, she was a stray. We rescued her too, and I looked at her and I said, her name is Blossom. It's just the way it is. She was She's like this fluffy little white dog. And it just popped up. And then I realized it's like peaches and blossom. There's all that kind of, you know, goes together. Um, And I don't know. She just seemed like a blossom to me. And she's hilarious. And when I was teaching my YouTube live, every single time I would teach class, she would come in right around jam. She would have to be right underneath my feet just as I was doing jam, And she would get right underneath. And it would be like I would be, you know, sweeping her along. On the or, you know, Auteur. It was hilarious. It was like, okay, here's jean Here comes Blossom.
0: So. That's amazing. I love her. I love the name Blossom. She's so cute. And she obviously loves the relaxing jean music. So <laughs> she's good taste. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then you can answer any of these questions as, you know, from your perspective as a dancer or a teacher, you know, obviously, but is there a go-to item that you have to have in your ballet bag at every class or rehearsal?
1: Um, I wear a pair of, they're not exactly parachute. I guess they are parachute pants. They're long. Um, and you know, I have to, I always have to have them. And I either like, they're not the thick, they're not the super thick ones. Those used to be, those used to be my, my must haves. Um, and then for a while they weren't made. They were the, those are the really heavy duty vinyl ones that, you know, I would wear in New York in classes in New York in the summertime and just sweat, which is, you know, you could not have, not have warm muscles. Your sweat would just drip down out <laughs> of those. These are not the same, but they're still, they, I don't know. There's something about having them that makes me feel like, you know, I'm, I'm in class as opposed to teaching.
0: Is there a famous ballet dancer who inspires you or who you've looked up to throughout your career?
1: Ah. Uh, that has changed at various times. Um, I was of the generation that Gilsey Kirkland was sort of the ideal because I mean she was fantastic. She's a gorgeous, gorgeous dancer. But um she also had a um had a novel, she published a, a memoir that sort of detailed some unsavory parts of the ballet world. And you know, we all gobbled that book up and went, oh my gosh. So we just want to smoke cigarettes and do a lot of drugs. No, I'm joking, totally joking. That's not what we did. But she was really, really amazing, Kelsey Kirkland. And she still is. She still is tremendous. Um uh Sylvie Guillem, I love her. I think her feet are something that you just want to, you know, um Uh, like you just want to like take a mental picture of them and just imagine that your feet are like curves or arches. Um, So those two, I would say are really, you know, tremendous. Like I love watching them. I love watching videos of them. I love, but I also love watching videos of, you know, um, like Wendy Whelan, who's, you know, another tremendous uh, performer. Um, Suzanne Farrell, um, I know I'm, those are older dancers, but that's, you know, I think that a lot of dance, I think that dancers who are able to continue into their 40s and 50s give us very different performance quality. And that's something I, I enjoy. I mean, you know, um, virtuosity is wonderful. I love seeing people. I'm impressed with like a million fouette turns, you know, and those are tremendous. But I think that character is something that I'm much more interested in these days, and seeing like full body performance. You know,
0: I was also curious: is there a city that you would love to travel to and dance in?
1: Oh, I would love to go to. Well, um, I've been to Florence, Italy, but I feel like I, you know, I didn't, I didn't dance there. I would love to take a group of dancers. This has been my dream. I would love to take a group of dancers to Italy. And to dance and perform there, I think that would just be amazing because I love Italy. I think it's a, a, a you know really rich and historic um, country and um, of course, has a, a huge you know ballet um, uh, history. Um, I mean, of course Paris, you know France does as well. Um, but I that would be my dream. I would love to take a group of dancers to, to Italy. That would be fantastic. You want to do that, Elizabeth? Should oh, that we do would that? Be
0: amazing. Yeah, sign me up. I'm all in. <laughs> um, yeah. And then my last question is just, you know, given everything we've talked about, in a perfect world, what would ballet look like, or what would you want it to be?
1: I would love to see. I would love to see more women as artistic directors and choreographers, and just leaders in the ballet world are not as Uh, We just don't see them. And so I think that it's great. I mean, I I would love more inclusivity of, of everybody. um, And I would love to see more, uh, you know, women and, you know, um, non-binary leaders um, in, you know, in, in that, in, in those top, top roles um, in companies, because I think that that would be the way to affect real change. Um, You know, it's great. Ground ground up is great, but I think top down is, you also have to
0: have happen. Yeah, 100% across the board, I agree with you. And, you know, you're one of those women in a leadership role in ballet who's making great changes with your company. So I'm so happy to have the chance to talk with you and also to dance with you. Um, so I really appreciate your time. And I was wondering if you could just let people know where they can find you and connect with you, you know, your social media handles or maybe your company website.
1: Oh, sure. Um, the company website is leepertalballetcompany.org. And my classes and information about, you know, taking class with me is at leepertalballet.com. There's all these things that say Leepertal. Um, and I'm, I think we are both, I'm on, I'm on Instagram as Leepertal and the company is on Instagram as Leepertal Ballet Company. And I think we are also on Facebook. Uh, we don't do Twitter. So, or whatever it is now. Um, yeah, I can't keep up. <laughs> so, but yeah, Instagram and Facebook, I think are the, the best places to find us. And our website definitely has a lot of information about what's going on. And we're always, you know, I do hope that I want, I don't want to ever give up the remote component of the Valley company, because I think that that is really important. And I don't, I don't, I I hope that, People listening, if they think that they might want to join the company, um, that they consider that, um, look into it because contact us or, or just you know stop by and say hello um, because I want I want that to continue.
0: Yeah, me too. Definitely anyone who's listening, check out the company and um, inquire about how you can be a part of it. It's such a great community. And you know, we'll link to the the website and the social media handles in the podcast description. And I don't know if the Eventbrite page is up for Cracked, um, Nutcracker with a twist yet, but if it is, I'll put a link to that too in the description. Um, but Lee, thank you so much for taking the time. I can't tell you how much it means to me to be able to I don't think we've ever gotten a chance to actually sit down and talk about the background of the company and your background. So I appreciate getting to learn so much from you.
1: Thank you so much for even asking me. I feel I feel really honored that you know that you would want to know. So I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm, my life is an open book Elizabeth you can ask me <laughs> anything <laughs> literally and figuratively because you're also yes. <laughs> exactly
0: so oh, that's great thank you so much I appreciate it thank you very much yeah and I'll see you later this week on Friday for rehearsals
1: yes you will
0: The way that Lee talks about storytelling as a dancer shows how passionate she is, and I love that she was able to weave three of her favorite things together to create this company, film, stories, and dance. She's the best, and she's created such a wonderfully supportive group of dancers and friends. We talked toward the end about Cracked, Nutcracker with a Twist, and I mentioned I wasn't sure if the Eventbrite page to buy tickets was up yet. I'm still getting the hang of hosting a monthly podcast. We recorded this interview early, but it's a month before the show opens, and yes, the Eventbrite page is absolutely up and running. You can buy tickets, and you should, because Lee has created such a charming Nutcracker story. The show opens on November 11th at 7 p.m. at the Lanterman Auditorium in La Cañada, California. And if you can't make it that day, there's another show on November 12th at 4 p.m. LPVC also has a supporter program, which not only furthers its mission and enables the company to continue redefining ballet storytelling, but gives supporters access to discounted tickets. The company offers benefits to sponsors for different levels of support, and all donations are tax-deductible. I'll include a link to the company website for info about how to join or support what they're doing. The Eventbrite page for tickets to the upcoming production and the sponsorship info page all in the podcast description thank you so much to lee for talking with me and thanks everybody for listening next month we have a guest that in the few short months that this podcast has been up and running i've already received several emails and social media messages with requests to have this person do an interview it's happening i'm so excited to talk to them look for that episode on november 7th in the meantime happy pumpkin or zombie season happy dancing and see you at the bar